Good morning. You can open your Bibles up to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians will be in chapter 1. So the, the second Advent theme we're going to study this week is the biblical theme of hope. And the church has historically set apart in the season of Advent or Christmas time a week to celebrate and think on, on hope. Now hope is sort of an abstract concept. It's not easy to pinpoint an exact meaning. And there are, are many secular definitions out there of hope that I don't think capture the, the essence of what the scriptures, of what Christian hope actually is. You see, Christian hope, the hope described in the scriptures, is not ambiguous. It, it has a clear meaning and a clear function in the believer's life. So I found this definition from the, the Old Testament professor David Murray helpful. He says, Christian hope is a, a, realist, a realistic expectation of and a joyful longing for future good and glory based upon the reliable word of God. A realistic expectation of and a joyful longing for future good and glory based upon the reliable word of God. So this idea of joyful longing for future good is what the church is celebrating each year at Advent. As we look back to the Advent of our Lord, the birth of Jesus Christ, we see hope fulfilled as the many prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And that remembering those many promises fulfilled in Christ spurs on our faith to look forward to the, to the second advent of our Lord as we wait for his second coming with hope, with an expectant, a, a joyful hope of future glory, knowing that, as he always has, the Lord is faithful to fulfill and to deliver on everything that he has promised. Now in our text today, we're going to examine the hope that is found and the hope that is ours in the gospel. And it is my hope that, that we come away encouraged and nourished as we reflect on what Christ has done for us on our behalf, that, that through faith in him and his death on the cross, we can have reconciliation with God. So please stand with me if you're able as we read Colossians 1, we're going to be reading verses 21 through 23. The Word of God says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul, at this point in the letter, has just come off writing what many people believe one of the, the most theologically rich and important passages in the New Testament. And that's found in verses 15 through 20. Many scholars believe what we have in these verses is probably an early Christian hymn 
that, that declares of the absolute supremacy, the, the absolute authority of Christ, authority over the entire creation, the entire cosmos. And if you notice in, in verse 18, authority, Jesus has authority or rule over the new creation, which is the church. And in verse 20, we're, we're introduced to the idea that, that through Jesus, all things, whether, whether on earth or in heaven, will be reconciled through his death. So that's a, a comprehensive reconciliation. It's what's sometimes known as, as cosmic reconciliation of Christ, which is the truth that God, through his son Jesus, is bringing about a, a true and peaceful order in all of creation by his death on the cross. Of course, we know that this full reconciliation work, this, this making things right, will not occur fully until Christ comes again to, to enact his full sovereign rule over everything. But Christ now is not inactive as we wait. He's not, he's not sitting on his hands just waiting for the end to come. Christ is doing that reconciliation work of all of creation as the head, as the, the ruler of a body right now, and that body being the body of Christ, the church. So the church, those that, that trust in and are saved by the blood of his cross, can become agents whom God's work of reconciliation can begin to be carried out by the proclamation and spread of the gospel to the nations. So now what we have here in our verses, 21 through 23, is a type of application of these truths of verses 15 through 20, whereby God invites humans in the present age to participate or to experience reconciliation with God that will bring them into the new creation community, the church. And, and because the, the recipients of Paul's letter, the Colossians, receive this invitation, they, they are in Christ, we see the results of God's reconciling work on sinful humanity here in verses 21 through 23, or what we call the gospel and the hope that we have in the gospel. So we're going to spend our time this morning under three main headings, three main ideas in the text. The first, separation from God. You'll find that in verse 21. Second, reconciliation with God. You'll see that in verse 22. And finally, our third point, we'll look at a, a warning from Paul not to shift from the hope of the gospel. So we have separation from God, point one. Point two, reconciliation with God. And then finally, not to shift in the hope of the gospel. So first, separation from God. Paul begins verse 21 by stating plainly and clearly the original sinful state that the Colossians and all of us find ourselves Read with me in, in verse 21. He says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
Paul states that the Colossians were once in a former time alienated. This word really just means separated. So the Colossians were separated, and it's clear from the context that this separation is from God. And not only were the, the Colossians and, and all of us before knowing Christ, not only were we separated from God, but notice we were also hostile and mind to God. The idea here Paul is conveying is being at enmity with God. The settled state of being hostile towards something or someone. In this case, in our natural state, Paul is saying he is hostility towards God and hostile in the mind. The word mind tells not just of the thinking life of a person, although that, that is surely corrupted and, and hostile towards the things of God, but this word here denotes the idea of mindset or the whole disposition of a person. So what Paul is saying is that non-Christians, which all of us were but before being saved by, by the grace of God, but non-Christians hold this position, their whole character, their whole nature is hostile towards God. It, 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 they hate God. They hate His ways. And this innate hostility that non-believers have towards God results, as we see at the end of verse 20, 21, results in non-believers doing evil deeds, or having a life characterized by evil behavior. And listen, there really is no doubt about it. This is bleak. This is a bleak outlook. Paul is stating here what he stated elsewhere in the New Testament, that, that human beings, every single one of us in our natural state, are completely hostile towards God because because of the sin of Adam, our, our first father, which brought all of us condemnation. And we're hostile towards God as all of us have, have willingly participated and willingly engaged in conscious, blatant sin against the holy God. I think this is taught very clearly in, in Romans 5. And Paul, I think, is, is saying something very similar here in verse 21. And what I want us to notice this morning, that I think sometimes we might miss, but it's clear in this text, is that this alienation, this separation from God is our own doing. This isn't because God is some grumpy old man that, that doesn't want anything to do with his creation. Paul presents in this verse the idea that the separation we all have with God without Christ is because we are all hostile towards God in our deepest dispositions. Non-believers, which, which we all were such, hate God and abandon His ways and openly do what they know is wrong, do what is evil in their, in their conscience. And the evil that characterizes their life and the hostility they have towards God results in separation from the Father. So listen, God is not unjust here in this verse. He's not being overly harsh. He separates himself from the non-believer because the non-believer in his deepest part of his being hates God. 
is hostile towards God. You know, this is kind of like a, a criminal who, who does a horrendous crime, is locked away in prison, and in a sense is alienated or separated from his loved ones. It would be utterly foolish for him to blame anyone else for the separation. It was, it was his evil deeds, his wicked actions that resulted in his alienation from everything and everyone that he once knew. To tie it back to our text, we all, without faith in Christ, we all are the criminal in that story. Because we are alienated from the Father because of our, our hatred of him and our own evil, our own sinful deeds. So I think we need to remember that, that humanity, we, we are the great problem, not God. And maybe you're here and you don't know Christ and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't feel like I hate God. I don't feel any hostility in my heart towards God. I mean, I'm here. I think, I think God is fine. Maybe you think he, he's a good moral guide for some people. And people are free to believe in him and you'll just do your best to be a good person and and live a good life. If that is you this morning, I want you to hear the words and feel the weight of this text. Because even if that's the way you feel, the word of the living God says that you are presently hostile towards him. And you are presently separated from God. And friend, there will be nothing worse than being separated from God when we all face judgment. Or maybe you're here and you've lived a life that you're you're not proud of and you just don't understand why you can't stop doing the things you know you shouldn't be doing. You can't stop doing evil. It feels like it's ruling your life. Listen, the reason that is, according to Paul in this text, is because unless you repent and put your, your full trust in Christ for salvation and admit you can't do things right in your own way, unless you do that, then as the text says, you you are living in hostility towards God. And your evil actions will, will always characterize your life. You're presently at enmity with God, at war with Him. So the call for both of those types of people from this text is to turn today and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. It truly is your only hope. It's all of our only hope. And for the Christian, I always find it good, and and the Apostle Paul seems to think so as well, that we remember where we came from. That we contrast the life we have in Christ with the life we lived apart from him. That is exactly what what Paul is doing in these verses. It is good for us to remember our evil deeds, the the hostility we had towards Christ, the separation we had with the Father because of our obstinate sinfulness. Because whether you're you're saved at 6, 16, or, or 60, We need to remember our our sinful state apart from Christ so that we remain humble, not not haughty or or presuming on the Lord in any way. 
And brothers and sisters, I'm sure all of us in this room can attest that if not for God working in our life, we would be like verse 21 says, a life characterized by hostility towards God, separated from him. And we need to remember this reality, our, our former reality, as we ponder on the hope of the gospel in verse 22, because it makes this gospel hope so sweet, so precious to us when we remember what we were saved from. This leads to our, our second point in verse 22, reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with God. Verse 22 is a wonderful verse. It is a great verse. You should memorize it. Uh, and it's pretty clear to understand. You could add in the word but at the beginning of the verse. It says, but he, that is God, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So again, Paul is contrasting the state of the Colossian Christians before they were reconciled and after. So before you were alienated and hostile in mind, now you are, you are reconciled and holy. Reconciled here simply means made to be in a right state or, or right relationship with God. So instead of separation and hostility, which is the reality for non, the non-believer, the Colossian Christians and all Christians thereafter are reconciled with God, are made to be in friendly relationship, in, in a familial relationship as sons and daughters of God. And notice we see how this reconciliation takes place. Right? Paul writes, in his body of flesh by his death. In his body of flesh by his death. This is clearly referring to the cross of Christ. Our reconciliation with God occurs only through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who, who took on flesh, was born as a baby, took on full humanity, lived a perfect life, never sinning, and was beaten, mocked, and killed so that those who trust in him can be reconciled with God can be made to have a right relationship with, with the God who created us, the God who created the universe. And you know, this, this is exactly why Christians are obsessed with, and we should be, singing of the cross. Because Christian, we know that it is through the death of Christ, as Paul is saying here, it is through his death and only through his death that we could be made right with God that the separation we have because of our wickedness, because of our own sin that we choose to do, that hostility and separation is completely gone forever. And we now are sons and daughters of God. Notice Paul goes, goes on in this verse to say that the, the death of Jesus on the cross which, which brings reconciliation. He goes on to say what the purpose is of this. Paul says, in order to, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the, the reason, the reason God has reconciled those in Christ through the death of his son 
is for the purpose of presenting us holy, presenting us blameless, and presenting us above reproach before him. So what's going on with, with these three words, holy, blameless, and above reproach? So I'm going to argue that they largely mean the same thing, although with, with some minor nuance. Paul seems to use them stylistically here. In the Greek, it's much more clear. They, they all start with, with the same letter, alpha. So many commentators believe he, he's using alliteration here for, for literary purposes. But the meaning of these words definitely have Old Testament connotations. All of these words, but especially blameless, or it can also be translated without blemish, and the word holy, both of these words are, are often used in the Old Testament to describe sacrifices. Sacrifices to the Lord. So remember, Old Covenant Israel needed to, to present the Lord with, with animals for sacrifices to atone for, for their sins that were without blemish, blameless. That means that, that they, they were without defections. They were worthy of the Lord's worship. So this is important. What Paul is doing here then is saying that God has reconciled those who believe in his son and his death for salvation. God has reconciled them in order to present them holy, spotless, without blemish before the Lord. And also this, this term above reproach. I like a, a, another translation better for that word, above reproach. It can also be rendered free from accusation. Free from accusation. Because it gets at the idea of, of what Paul is saying here, or that what Paul is saying here is pertaining to, pertaining to the last judgment of all humanity. Right? We will we'll all one day face the judgment seat of God and have to face the, the just judgment of God against our actions, against our works, against our life. And the absolutely glorious truth here is that God has reconciled us to him through the death of his son in order to present us perfect, spotless, holy, free from any accusation at his judgment seat. And there is no greater news in the world than this, that, that all of our wicked actions, all of our evil deeds, every single one of them will be covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus at God's throne. There will be no accusation against us. And the, and the astonishing thing is that there really should be, because it's clear from verse 21 that, that without the death of Jesus, without faith in him, faith in that death, we would face judgment from God. We would face complete condemnation for our hostility and, and our evil actions against him. And again, that is actually what every single one of us deserves, condemnation. But God has done a work. God is the one who, who has initiated the saving work. God is the one who, who reconciles us back to himself through his son so that when we stand before him, we can do so confidently 
free from any accusation of our past. So think of that, that evil thing you did. Think of it right now that, that you, you just don't understand how it can be forgiven. In Christ, it is utterly vanquished before the judgment seat of God if you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. This is the gospel. This is the good news of salvation found in the Son. And you know what this gives believers? Hope. A joyful expectation and longing for the future. This is our hope in the gospel, that when we face God's judgment, as all humanity will have to face, when we face God's judgment, what will God see? What will God see in us covered in Christ's blood? He will see holy. He'll see without blemish, above reproach. See, see how significant that is. This, this reality, Christian, should produce hope. Hope in a future that whatever gets thrown our way, suffering, persecution, disappointment, success, whatever comes our way, we have this unshakable hope that, that when we die, when we face judgment, we are covered by the blood of the Son and are reconciled to the Father. We are His children whom He loves. In verse 23, Paul gives a, a somewhat surprising turn in the sentence, at least to me when, when I read it, by issuing a command or, or warning, really, which is our, our final point. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel. We see this in verse 23. I'm going to read 22 again as well. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul says that, that this hope of the gospel is ours if we do something, if we if we continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of this gospel. So now this brings up, I think, a lot of interesting questions. Hopefully you have some of these as you read this, but one of them could be, is if, if God is the one who saves, not, not by our works and not by anything in us, and he, he reconciles us, and it is His work on our behalf, then, then how or why do I have to continue in why do, why do I need to do something if it's God's work? It's a really good question. Um, what we're presented with, I think, in verse 23 is something common throughout the whole of the Scriptures. And that is the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, human action. The Bible, as Paul does here, never denies either of these things. Both of them are true at the same time, and they, and they work together. Yes, God is the one who reconciles us by the death of his son so that we can be presented perfect and holy before him, and he will be faithful to complete the work he started in us. And yes, we must act and consciously continue and stand firm in the faith 
to be as presented as holy before him. Both are completely true, unquestionably true. Therefore, we must embrace both of these truths, although they seem intention to us. So what Paul is saying in verse 23 is that, that your reconciliation with God and the result of, of being presented holy before him in judgment occurs if you indeed continue in the faith. So what does, what does continue in the faith mean? It seems clear to me Paul, Paul, what Paul is referring to by continuing in the faith is continuing believing the doctrine or the beliefs that make up the faith, the, the Christian faith. So if you remember last week, the, the context that Paul is writing the letter to the Colossians is that there are enemies of the faith that are presenting the Colossians with, with false teaching, false beliefs. So Paul is saying here, continue in the faith, continue believing the, the right beliefs that you have learned from the saints and from me, right doctrine. Stay believing right doctrine, right Christian truth. And then Paul gives a means, I think, of how to continue believing right truths. So notice he says, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. We could say, be stable, be steadfast. Stable and steadfast are architectural terms, typically used for a strong or solid foundation that, that provides stability. Stable, that word often refers to, to the literal laying of a foundation of a structure. The idea Paul is getting at is that the Christian must stand firm and not waver on their belief in Christian truth, like a well-anchored, a well-fortified structure. You know, moving up to Amarillo, I've been fascinated by a lot of things here. It's very different than Austin. Um, but one of the things that I've always wanted to examine is tornado shelters. I have always been intrigued by meteorology, maybe too intrigued. Looking at Andrea, she's laughing, it's true. So I like tornado shelters, but I never got to see one in Austin. So in, an, in our house, we have an above ground tornado shelter. And the way those work, at least ours, is that as opposed to a below ground shelter, is that they have their strong fortified structure made out of metal, and they have several anchors every 12 inches below the structure to, that go into the foundation about three inches into the concrete foundation. So the combination of these anchors allows for the shelter to withstand the strongest winds there are, supposedly F5 tornadoes. I don't want to have to find out. Um, and these shelters can withstand those without movement. They're stable. They're steadfast. Similar to the picture that Paul's getting at in Colossians. Our faith, our lives should be like those shelters, stable, steadfast, immovable, so that we don't shift from the hope of the gospel when the storms, when the winds of false teaching come our way. Paul says in Ephesians 4.14 that 
we, that, that, that's Christians, should no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. When the winds of false teaching come in our life, and, and trust me, they will come, we need to be, as Paul warns here, as commands here, stable. We need to be steadfast in what we believe, what doctrines, what Christian truths we, aff- we affirm, so we, do not sh- we don't shift from this great hope of the gospel. And friends, false teaching is everywhere. Our culture is full of ideas and beliefs that are contrary to the word of God and the gospel. We are flooded with information almost everywhere and beliefs every day that that aren't true and should be rejected. And I have seen several times firsthand, painfully, Christians or, or those who profess to be Christians not stand firm not be steadfast in what they believe. And slowly they, begin, they began to be influenced by, by false beliefs in the world, false teaching in the world, or sometimes even in the church. And eventually, they renounced the faith altogether. They turned from Jesus. And this is tragic, but it, it, it's happening. It's always happened. It always will happen. And it's what's And the warning Paul is giving the Colossians, the warning he's giving to us is this. Do not shift from the hope we have heard in the gospel. Do not waver. Because false teaching is so dangerous. It's it's typically attractive. It looks harmless at first. It seems like a, a logical thing to believe. In our day specifically, I think many false teachings seem morally upright in our culture. Like it's the only thing that that a polite, educated person should believe in. Maybe you've heard some of these teachings. Like the Bible, the God of the God of love. No, he would never restrict who could marry who. Love is love no matter the gender. Or one dangerous idea I've seen in recent days, maybe you've heard this that we need to to deconstruct our faith from its European Reformation heritage so that we can have an authentic, non-oppressive theology that that isn't rooted in in white supremacy or or patriarchy. So we should reject what the Bible teaches on gender. They're just social categories. We should reject the authority of Scripture because it's just a culturally conditioned document. Maybe you've heard language like this. Listen, these are very popular beliefs in our context. They're growing, even growing in the church. And the call, I think, the warning of this text is that we can't entertain them. We can't shift from the hope of the gospel. We must hold fast. We must stand firm. We must be steadfast and believe right beliefs, right doctrine that is revealed to us clearly in God's word. Or we can't be hopeful of God's coming judgment. That's the warning. So if you're here and you're a Christian and you can see areas in your life where, you're, where you aren't standing firm, if you're honest, and there are Christian beliefs that are seeming more wrong in your head 
or maybe in, even in your emotions. They just don't feel right. And these other beliefs, these, these false beliefs, are becoming more and more attractive to you. You need to be warned from this text. That is dangerous, an eternally dangerous road to go down. You need to turn and embrace and hold fast to the teachings clearly revealed in Scripture, the teachings of this gospel. And the truth of God's word, Christian, is that those that are truly of Christ, they will hear what Paul is saying here, and they will abide by this warning. And those who proclaim Christ's name but don't heed this warning, as 1 John says, they were never actually of us. They were never actually Christian. They were never truly saved. Our perseverance to the end for our faith ultimately rests in the finished work of Christ. And that is great news. And this command, this warning in verse 23 is a means, a way in which God will keep you in the faith. So we must take the command seriously. But the truth is we know the end of the story. Those in Christ will hold fast, will stand firm, and will not turn from the hope in the gospel. We must not be inactive. We, we, we have a responsibility. We, we have to continue in the faith. We have to actively combat false teaching and believe in right doc doctrine. But listen to me. As long as this gospel is precious to you, as long as you can embrace the truths of Scripture gladly, as long as you have no greater hope than the hope that God has sent His Son to die on your behalf to reconcile you, to present you perfect in His sight, as long as that is utterly precious to you, you can have hope, Christian. You can have assurance that God has saved you. So this Advent season, as we remember the hope we have in Christ, the hope we have in the, his coming to the world as a baby, remember the hope of his gospel that was taught here in Colossians. That we will not be judged for our sins, but have been made perfect, spotless in his sight by the blood of his Son. And may God grant all of us the strength, the steadfastness to hold firm and to never waver in that hope. May it always be sweet to us. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. We are thankful to sit under your word. We thank you for the gospel that you sent your son to die on our behalf so that if we trust him, we can be made in right relationship with you, that we can become your children and that we are your children through faith in your son. Thank you for that Lord, give us confidence, give us hope. 
that when we see you face to face, that when we, we sit at your judgment seat, we are covered in the blood of your son and we are made perfect and spotless and holy before you. And Lord, let us cause us to, to abide by this warning in this text. Father, that we, would, that we would continue in the faith, all of us in here, that we would be stable and steadfast and that we would reject any false teaching that is attractive to us. Lord, I pray that you would protect this congregation from false teaching that is crouching at the door. Please eliminate it from our lives and in this church. Father, we love you, we love your son. We are so appreciative of the hope that we have in the gospel. Help us remember it, help us cling to it this, this Christmas season. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I'd like to invite you to, to stand as we respond to the Lord and we respond to this hope that we've heard in the gospel through song.